Welcome to Conversations in Coco, produced and hosted by Lauren Heineck. That's me. In these episodes, you will listen to interviews and other audio components that stem from the writings and newsletters found via the Substack platform where I am producing content. There are previous posts and future posts that will arrive to your inbox, available in various levels of membership found at laurenontheweekend.substack.com. Connect with me on Twitter at Weekend Chocolate and Instagram, Lauren on the Weekend. For all those three weekend mentions, that is WKND. Thanks as always for your support. And now a conversation with Dr. Aaron Alice Cowling, author of Chocolate, How a New World Commodity Conquered Spanish Literature published by the University of Toronto Press in 2021. I do like to get to know the people that will be on the podcast. And uh, I know that you are quite interested in the subject of chocolate, but have also a very unique background in theater and literature, kind of just to grasp an understanding of, of how you spend your days and what has drawn you to study the things that you do. I'm a professor at a undergraduate serving institution in Edmonton called McEwen University. So we only have undergraduate students. That's kind of rare in Canada, but it's really great. I get to meet them sort of all along their Spanish learning journey. So sometimes I teach Spanish, we call it 111, but you know, 101. Hola, como estas? And they're like, oh my gosh. And right up to sort of the upper level literature, translation, culture, all those kinds of classes. And so it's kind of a unique situation where I find myself teaching students who have everything from zero knowledge of Spanish right up to people who are maybe thinking about going on to grad school and want to learn more about the research process. So my days can be a little bit all over the place. I try to get one day a week where I can just focus on research. Uh, And my research, like you said, primarily focuses on the theater. And right now I've been moving more and more into not just what was theater like during, you know, the time period of Lope de Vega and Calderón de la Barca, but what are companies today around the world doing with those plays to bring them to a contemporary audience? So I've been working particularly with a couple of groups out of Mexico, and we just did a, I'll call it a digital short. It was about 40 minutes. It was sort of the first act of Los Empeños de una Casa by Sor Juana Inés de la Cruz, getting that colonial author and bringing her to sort of a 21st century Mexican audience. And what does that mean for them? Like I said, I'm sort of all over the place, but that's what I'm working on. And that's what I do in my day to day in the classroom as well. Oh, that's excellent. Yeah, I can't wait to hear about some of these further resources as we go through our chat today. The language of Spanish, ultimately my second language, if I ever master it, but I think they've used the word like it has so much riqueza, like this richness, Mm -hmm. this profundity. And I'm curious if in your own learning of the language or, you know, in texts that you've uncovered, you found certain phrases or words that have referenced cacao or chocolate that have really resonated with you. I was thinking about that. And there's nothing that sticks out as like, this is a phrase, but there's a lot of things that 
we now use as phrases, both in Spanish and English, that you see sort of the start of or the generation of in some of these texts, right? For example, you know, in English, we always say like, oh, I hope they get a taste of their own medicine. Whereas in Spanish, you can get that sort of same idea of medicine, but they also sometimes interchange it with chocolate. So they say una sopa de su propio chocolate or una cucharada de su propio chocolate. So like a soup of his own chocolate or a, a spoonful, right? Or her own chocolate. And that you do see in these source texts, the idea of chocolate as a potential medicine. I think some of these things, like the seeds were planted back then. One thing that I found a lot of is not necessarily a phrase, but is something that perhaps has extended to today is they like to play with words, right? And so you get in some of the texts, especially the theatrical texts that talk about chocolate, this comparison of the two words cacao and the Spanish word caca, usually the sort of um, servant type characters mistaking the word cacao for caca and thinking, well, I don't want to eat a soup of or a drink of that particular thing. So why would you be offering me that? Of course, we still get poop jokes and those kinds of jokes today. And they weren't above that in the 1600s either. Surely. That's quite funny. I believe David Boyles is the historian who studies Nahuatl. And he's done some discussions and some research of the origin of the word chocolate. And I, and I hope to kind of get into that a little bit further in another episode. But he mentions a reference to that. It is interesting that there's that relationship to it and that, yeah, of course, we weren't above using those jokes. You have a book that has been launched this June. This is very exciting for the chocolate community. Chocolate, the new world commodity that conquered Spanish literature. I would first kind of like to have an understanding of when maybe the idea of writing a book came to you, how many years perhaps you've been dreaming or working on this, because I think that's something we kind of skip over often is the research and time that goes into putting something together. The very first work that I did on this was actually while I was writing my dissertation in my PhD program. And there was a play called Santa Rosa del Peru, which is supposed to be sort of this homage to the first American saint who's beatified in the 1660s. And so the play was written sort of as a celebration of her and this beatification of her on her way to sainthood. I was writing my dissertation on theater and how the Americas were being portrayed in Spanish theater at that time. I read this play, I thought this is super interesting, but it didn't really actually fit with anything else that I was working on. I had a chapter on women, but it was sort of like these warrior women, like women who ended up leaving Spain, dressing up as men so that they could go and take part in the conquest or indigenous women who were sort of tricking these Spanish men who were coming over and, and sort of getting their people out of bad situations or, you know, doing all kinds of, of interesting things in that way. And this play doesn't really work that way at all because Rosa is sort of very meek and she's supposed to be, you know, fasting all the time because she devotes her life to God. I wrote a little part of the first chapter on that play. And I gave the first chapter to my advisor and he read it and he's like, this is all super interesting, but these five pages don't really fit. 
it does not fit with your argument. It doesn't go along with the other women you're talking about. So I don't know if we're going to be able to use it. So I ended up taking it out. You know, you never throw anything out. You put it aside and you say, maybe I'll come back to this someday. And you save it in a different Word document, right? And then a few years later, I saw a call for the Modern Language Associations conference that somebody wanted to do a panel on food in early modern literature. And I thought, oh yeah, I worked on that play about chocolate because there's a lot of chocolate in the play. And, you know, I want to present something on that because I never really did anything with it. I went to the MLA and I applied to, to be on the panel and they accepted me. And before I flew to Vancouver, I got an email from somebody at a press saying, I see that you're going to give this talk. Have you thought about writing a book on this? I was like, uh, wow, <laughs> no, you know, I was still looking for full-time work and I was sort of on the job market and that was my main focus at that time. But after talking to them and then talking to a few other publishers, you know, there was some serious interest in chocolate. And I thought, well, I need to figure out, is there enough in the literature of the time period for a full book? Really, that was early 2015 when that sort of all started the ball rolling. Wow. So six years. There have been other books that we've, and other authors that we've featured here on the podcast. And of course, there's seemingly a new book about chocolate every few months. Of course, if we go into the recipe world, there's one maybe every day that launches in some format. With your focus on Spanish literature, can you go a little bit into the definition of, of what you see that as? I mean, I think broadly we think of words, but what else encompasses the idea of, of literature to begin with? And then we'll move on from there. It's a really interesting question, right? Because you see, even if you look like at a university catalog, sometimes in literature departments, we'll have courses on film, you know, on television series, on things that we would consider these sort of more visual aspects. Literature, I mean, if you ask for like the real quote unquote definition, people would probably say, you know, it has to be something that's written down. But then you have to ask yourself, like, well, where do we put a graphic novel, right? And when we start to look at graphic novels, we can look back in time and see all these graphic ways of writing that happened in Latin America, that happened, you know, in places like Egypt. And we have to say, was it literature? Were they, you know, writing for pleasure? Were they telling each other stories? Are oral histories that are maybe not history in the sense of this is the fact that happened after another fact? Is that literature? So I think we could start to expand our definition. And even within sort of these traditional university environments, we're seeing that definition being expanded even today. And what do you hope that scholars or passionate chocolate fans and readers of your book take away from what you have provided us? I think chocolate is much more complex than we realize. It's got this really rich history. It wasn't always just something that was a guilty pleasure or your birthday cake. It has all of this complex history and there are complexities with the chocolate trade today that we maybe don't want to be as aware of because that would mean we can't enjoy, you know, our hot chocolate our chocolate chip cookie quite as much as we want to, but it's a really interesting history and there's so much going on there that we just don't even know about. 
Yeah, and you bring to life some really interesting examples that I think are often overlooked or not included in other sources. Speaking for maybe a layperson like myself, I have not spent a lot of time understanding the world of theater, and you recommended a, a play to me, Mestiza, that I read and, and found a lot of joy in. And I love words and I love writing, but I usually don't think in that format and that grows. And so it was very kind of interesting to, to see cacao and chocolate represented in that way that was different than I had recognized elsewhere. I know you have Professor Cowling a connection perhaps with Dr. Marcy Norton, who also has a book on chocolate or including chocolate in the theme. And she speaks a bit about sort of what you also reference this hybridization of how the two cultures, the old world and the new world came together, that there was this entanglement. I'm curious if you could speak a little bit more about that and if you also see similarities with her work or how you even might differentiate yourselves. Yeah, so actually Dr. Norton's book, Sacred Gifts and Profane Pleasures, was really a great source for me to kind of get some of the specifics about like how much chocolate was going to certain places and things like that and how it was received. I think that's a, a great book if somebody wants to know more about the specific history of chocolate and tobacco, which she also talks about in that book. Yeah, I definitely believe that you get kind of this hybrid very quickly with chocolate, maybe in ways that you don't get with other things in that time period. We know that it's already by sort of the early 1600s coming over in large quantities. There are laws being put into place and edicts coming down from the Catholic Church saying, you know, we don't know enough about this yet. We have to be careful. We don't want it to break our fast. We could talk about that whole interesting idea about what fasting means and, and what things we're allowed to have and what we're not allowed to have. And you see in the literature sort of this push and pull where it starts to become acceptable in some places, in fact, to the point where if you are sort of a noble lady who often receives guests, you're expected to have chocolate ready for them when they come to your door, right? And this is considered like a welcoming now we might offer somebody tea or coffee if they came over. You were expected to have chocolate and not just any chocolate, but the good chocolate. So they differentiate based on what part of the new world it comes from. So Oaxaca chocolate was considered to be the highest quality. And in fact, in some of the literature, you get jokes about, well, she doesn't really have the means to have Oaxaca chocolate all the time. So she mixes a little bit of the good stuff with stuff that's not as high quality and offers that to her guests. But then you also see, like I said, you, you get the poop jokes, the people who don't understand what cacao is. And even into the 1700s, you still get some of these jokes of what is this new thing? Why are you offering it to me? You know, there is that back and forth of acceptance throughout this time period. I know that you had mentioned, of course, that you spend the bulk of your time looking at sources about till 1750, but if you could relate it towards today for a moment, have you seen that we've also struggled with that adaptation? Are we still sort of wrestling with our own relationship with it or because it is now so mass marketed and mass produced that we seem to have a greater appreciation or love affair with it? 
I mean, I think you do see, you know, diet culture, people saying chocolate's good for you, chocolate's bad for you. We still have that sort of debate about whether it's healthy. And that starts in that time period. You get some books that say you can have some, but only a little bit, or you can have some, but not stuff that is diluted too much. And you get that idea of the purity of the chocolate you're eating now as well. Right. And people are very specific about what percentage of chocolate they prefer. So I think you do see that even today we have some of that back and forth in diet culture, in these sort of health magazines or health blogs, right? You get the newest article, oh, chocolate's good for you. And we all go, we want to eat lots of chocolate because it tastes good anyway. I think it's something that has extended all the way through to today. Sure. And I don't think that this has ever not been part of the history of chocolate and trade, but I'm noticing, at least within the fine chocolate world, that we've kind of established these systems of classism so that if I like a certain kind of chocolate, I am therefore superior. (laughs) And it sometimes attaches itself to percentages or to the country of origin or to who makes it. So that's also an interesting element of just how we've kind of continuously held up our own value with chocolate as that companion. Absolutely. Um, You mentioned just uh, earlier about the appreciation for literature or how literature could be viewed through different lenses. In looking at the the pre and the post-conquest, I don't know what else to call them, transcripts or artifacts even, the idea that they were non-alphabetic languages. There seems to be the assumption by many that they were not then, again, with this idea of class kind of in place, that they were not as valuable or as important or as even uh, educational in their own existence. And I would love to hear how you then see that, Dr. Cowling, as, what am I getting at here? Well, you can maybe help me walk through this. So (laughs) many texts were destroyed. It was frowned upon in terms of its own culture or literary area of interest. How has, in the sources, this been a point of redemption? Was it ever then written about in lovely words or? I mean, when I read that question earlier, I think what you're trying to get at is like, yes, there was this sort of depreciation of Indigenous cultures from the point of view of somebody coming from Europe and landing on Hispaniola or what is today Mexico and and saying like, oh, you know, they do things that aren't like what we do. You know, they don't have what we would consider an alphabetic system. And there's this whole idea at that time period and, and slightly before that, you know, writing as a system comes directly from God. We have the Bible. That's a book. That's what writing looks like. And therefore, in our sort of tunnel vision, that's what they were seeing as knowledge, as writing, as something that should be maintained and passed on. So we do lose a lot of things, but I think there are things that perhaps you and I, as people who don't read Mesoamerican hieroglyphics or whatever you want to call them, or who don't have access to that language or an oral history that isn't ours, There may be things that have survived that we don't know about. I was actually talking to a student about this the other day because she sort of asked me, she's from a Latin American family. 
why are you interested in this stuff? You've been teaching us stuff that's about our history. It's fascinating to me that we have all of these different ways of processing information. And just because I don't understand it, that doesn't mean it's not worthy. Right. And I think we're starting to come around to these ideas, but we did lose a lot of things in the meantime. Things like the sources that talk about how chocolate was received in Europe and how it was seen when it was in Latin America and all of that, we can start to piece together some of those things that we've lost. Right. And I think that's a really valuable contribution. Through the book, then, or through, you know, your teaching and the way that you engage with your students or other panels or conferences you might be a part of, can we read the past historical sources and develop new understandings or ways of storytelling from here on out so that we're creating almost like a revisionist history that does justice to before? I hope so, right? Like I hope that we can sort of recuperate some of these things and you know, like I, I mentioned earlier, working with the Mexican theater companies to make these adaptations that speak to us today, whether it's me and my students or, you know, a contemporary Mexican audience or a contemporary U.S. audience. I think that's really important because a lot of these sources, they're not perfect. And, you know, they don't maybe speak about women or racialized people or, you know, other minorities in ways that we feel are okay anymore, but they're still talking about overarching themes, right? Like love and family and being an outsider in ways that can speak to us if they're done right. Yeah, that's the key, I think, in doing what is right, but then also how do you figure that out? <laughs> Which may be not only the key, but also the challenge. Mm-hmm. You just touched on this for a moment, but in looking at the way that women were portrayed in this time frame, what do you see as standing out that we might gawk at today, or even perhaps show a bit of pride to say that that was a, a very well-represented image? Especially the theater, there's always sort of this impetus for the play to get to a certain point, which is that something that is acceptable to the society of the time. Generally speaking, for women, that meant being married off to somebody who is appropriate for your status. But we do find plays where the women fight back and the women say, no, like, I don't necessarily want to just be somebody's wife or I don't necessarily, you know, believe that because something bad happened to me, I have to marry the person who did that terrible thing to me. Probably the best known play of that time period, Life's a Dream or La Vida Sueño, by Calderón de la Barca starts out with this, what we call the woman dressed as a man, the mujer vestida de hombre. You get a lot of those characters who actually choose to try and take their destiny into their own hands. Sometimes that means, like in that particular play, that they do end up with the person that they were going to take revenge against, because that is the best way for them to get to where they need to be to live their life in society. You do, however, get writers like Maria de Sayas. We have some female writers from the time period uh, and Ana Cardo who sort of buck those trends. Maria de Sayas in particular has some stories where the woman, say, decides that instead of marrying that person or staying married to an abusive person, she will go into a convent. 
And although to our sensibilities today, that might not seem like the best, happiest outcome, at the time, it was a way for a woman to be free of the entrapment of marriage or the entrapment of society that forced her into certain roles. And even Sor Juana Inés de la Cruz in Mexico ends up going to a convent because it's the best way, at least in part, for her to continue her education, right? Because a lot of times nuns had a lot more access to books and learning Latin or learning whatever they needed to learn beyond what somebody who was destined to become a wife and a mother might have. Chocolate continues to find compromise today in our household. (laughs) My husband has to try all of the recipes, good or not. (laughs) Would this also be a place to interject the comment about the dowry? Is this along the same lines? That's a really interesting case. It was a court case that I found reference to in the Archive of the Indies, which is in Seville. And it's a woman who goes to the courts and says, look, my husband's basically abandoned me. Technically, you couldn't get divorced, but people separated. And sometimes people either abandoned or were abandoned by a partner. And she says, you know, in order to get my dowry back, which he says he has spent, I would like you to award me the chocolate that I know he's ordered that's coming on the next ship, the next shipment from the Indies. And so she makes the argument like, this is basically of the same value as the dowry was that he has sort of taken and then abandoned me. Yeah, she goes and makes that argument in the court. What was the outcome? Do we know? I could not find the outcome, but I think it's just, it's indicative of what women were willing to do to take care of themselves, first of all. Secondly, the economic value of chocolate by sort of the mid 1600s right? That she felt that this would be worthy of what she lost out on by having this guy sort of marry her for her money and run. Yeah, I so appreciate that. I think often we get wrapped up in the historical piece of the currency being related to the Mexica Aztecs in that format of, you know, 10 beans was a rabbit, but we don't go much beyond that in actual, like, what is the value in all of these various elements of society throughout history? Yeah. Any other comments about the book that I might have missed that you'd like to highlight? I tried to break the book down into a little bit timeline, but also thematic, right? So if anybody's interested in the question of how religious authorities accepted or didn't accept chocolate in Spain, there's a chapter on that. There's the medical treatises as well. And then there's the economic. And then the last one is the darker side of chocolate not the 99% chocolate, but using it as a potion, using it in magic spells, using it to seduce people, all those kinds of like interesting things that were attributed to Latin America, but in fact are the things that are coming out of people using it in Spain. Ah, a teaser you could give us perhaps? So there's one play that I talk about where it is used as sort of a potion to make somebody go to sleep so that they can then actually rummage through his pockets for his coin purse. But probably the most interesting detail is about Carlos, the last Habsburg, who was also known as El Echizado or the bewitched one, right? Or the cursed one. And how the rumor was that his mother actually used chocolate as a base for a poison that made him 
not be very good at being a king so that she could continue to be his regent at that time. Classic. Maybe that's what they're using on the kings these days is a form of kolakao. I noticed throughout the book, there's a series of translations, which are really well done. And I'm curious from your your own experience or your work within that, that, that meant a lot to you to do so, or were these even new sources that therefore you had to translate yourself? Some of them are certainly sources that I haven't seen other places because they are, you know, they're just in the archive of the Indies or the Biblioteca Nacional in Madrid. And they're still in their original documentation, like they're on parchment paper or whatever and and written by hand, right? And so I had to go and transcribe those and then later went back and, and translated them. You know, University of Toronto Press being in Canada, they do want everything to be in French or English, right? And so that was one of the requirements really for the book to be published was to have the translations. And I was lucky enough to have a really great student who's just graduated and I'm going to miss her very much, but who has worked on several projects with me. And this one was the first, Ana Rodas Garza, who worked on some of the translations with me. And so some of that praise has to go to her and it's certainly not all me. It's one of those things that I never thought I would really get into translation, but it is kind of a requirement for some of the publications in my field. Do you see translation as another form of literature? That's a really interesting question. I see translation as it is an art form, right? To be a really good translator, you need to understand so much about literature and history and your audience, right? Because the way that I might translate for a book that's going to be published in North America isn't necessarily how even somebody writing on a similar topic might translate these sources for a UK audience or a more global audience, right? You have to take all of those kinds of things into consideration. And I'm not a professional translator by any means. There's a great book on translation. They talk about the fact that when you are translating, especially literature, you're really creating something new. And what ends up happening a lot of times is we get like reviews of translation that, or reviews of a translated work that then only take into account the English version, right? And not whether or not it is a good translation or a loyal translation or a more free translation of the original work. What ends up happening is we'll have a reviewer who let's say works for the Washington Post who only reads English. And this book argues that we need to be more all-encompassing, right, when we look at translated works. That's super interesting. I was even just considering as you were speaking that to be a translator or to translate text, you almost have to be or think like a citizen of the world. Because like you're saying, when you're trying to master a language that is not your, your native tongue or one of your first languages, I feel like you hit a point where if you can make a joke or if you understand popular culture, you've made it in, in a sense. But if you take everything so literal, or if you, you know, only learn from the textbooks, you're missing out on a huge chunk of the way that people think and feel and would write or speak of their own countries or or cultures. Yeah. The book is Why Translation Matters by Edith Grossman, who is also one of the more recent translators of the Quixote, even though we have 
hundreds of versions of the Quixote in translation. She did one probably in the early 2000s. Oh, great. Still on my bucket list. I'll get through it at some point. If there's an audio book version, I would really love that. I'm sure there is. <laughs> so Dr. Cowling, we had mentioned diet a little bit earlier, so I don't know if we need to go down that path again. And you also so lovely spoke to kind of in what you hope as the takeaways of your book and the way that people might consider the complexities of cacao and chocolate. Are there other elements that in our warming climate, in our evolving madness, we might connect or embrace or even remove ourselves from chocolate as we move forward? Oof. It's a difficult question, right? It's not my expertise at all. All I know is, you know, from what I've seen on documentaries on Netflix and things like that, I think we should consider what are the sources, right? Where is it coming from? What do we know about that source? The same thing that I do with literature, right? You know, dig deeper. Where is something coming from? What is something telling us? And how do we interpret that and consider it as best we can for what we want to see happen in the world? So crucial. Yeah, when I consider the text of the Conquistadores and I try to imagine like, or take everything a bit with a grain of salt, right? Because it's through their eyes of people that they often look down upon and kind of instilling that placement of power. So even today, how do we acknowledge like who's holding the power, who needs to, and how can we maybe not only spin the narrative, but ensure that there's justice through the sources and, and through our own chats and writings thereafter. So I'm so grateful for your time today. And I'm really excited for you to have launched your book and to now have it out in the world. And you'll just also leave us with where we can find it in what countries it's available for purchase and where we can also find you. You can find it on the University of Toronto Press website. And I know they have a subsidiary in England for European purchases. It's also on Amazon, at least.com and .ca, hopefully also .es, but I'm not sure about that one. It should be available most places that people would buy books, especially online nowadays. And where you can find me, I'm on Twitter at Prof E for Aaron Cowling or Profe Cowling, playing with that sort of dual meaning. That's probably the easiest way to find me if you want to find me on social media. And you are very responsive. So I appreciate that. Thank you again for, for all that you've provided to this session today and looking forward to where you go next. Thank you.